Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Rankin Gassaway. Now, before we recorded this episode, Rankin and I had a little bit of a chat, just kind of introduce ourselves. And one thing that Rankin said to me said, Jim, I love the episodes that I've listened to before on innovative legal leadership, which just go off script. And we certainly did that on this discussion with Rankin. I'm not sure if it was planned, but uh, it's a marvellous discussion. And we did go off script, but really talk about what's important in life. A family, insecurities, your personal journeys. When I reflected on my discussion at the end, I I tried to think about what's one word that can summarise Rankin. And here's where I landed, leadership. That's what I think Rankin personifies, and I think you're going to agree with me. Regardless, I think you can have an absolute blast listening to this episode. It's a real, it's a gem, I have to say. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Rankin Gassaway, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thank you, Jim. I'm I'm very excited to be with you. Now, you fired me up, Rankin, because you've already said you listened to some of the podcasts and you, you, you think they're not too bad, so you've got me in a good mood. That's fantastic. But it's not about me, Rankin. It's about you today. You're currently the EVP and Chief Administration Officer at 7-Eleven. You were the GC for well on, I think, 30 years there. So before we get into the recent times, let's go back a little bit in the past and tell me a little bit about the rankin Gassaway story. How did you get started in law? What, what are those early days like? And what was some of the inspiration that uh, was perhaps formative in your early career? Well, just, just to be clear, Jim, I do have 30 years with 7-Eleven, which I'm very proud of became general counsel in 2012. Yes. Uh, after a long history with various roles in the legal department. Always in legal. I was trained as a lawyer, went to Texas Tech uh, University School of Law out in Lubbock, Texas. Most of your listeners are probably not that familiar with Lubbock. It's uh, Lubbock's a wonderful town. I'm very appreciative of my history with tech. I'll say, though, that Lubbock is not on the way to anywhere. So right. okay. uh, if you, you only go to Lubbock if you intend to go to Lubbock. Let's just say okay. it that way. <laughs> yep. Going back, though, I was raised, my mother and father were from a small town in West Texas. And uh, my mother is, uh, she's a wonderful woman, prototypical grandmother, very strong-willed West Texas woman. Yep. She, she made it very clear to me when I was growing up that uh, I could be anything in life I wanted to be as long as it was a doctor or a lawyer. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I love parents like that. Gotta love that. I mean, bless them, And but look what's happened. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. you know, I, she might object to that characterization, but I think it's pretty accurate. I actually went to the University of Texas to study biology. I was going to be a doctor, and yep. that was great right up until uh, organic chemistry. It wasn't so much that I couldn't do organic chemistry as that I discovered that I really didn't want to. So I like to say organic chemistry knocked me right into the liberal arts college, which is where I should have been all along. I was a high school debater. Uh, you know, I had a 
penchant for the language. And, you know, it led me then to switch majors, uh, ultimately go to law school, which, you know, it's just funny uh, how things work out and how we find the place that we are meant to be, because that was, I, I never should have been a doctor, always yeah. should have studied the law. That all worked out. So thank, we can thank my mother for that. So a couple things there. I mean, being really grateful that earlier in your career that you actually do find the right path. Sometimes it takes, sometimes it never happens. So that's certainly something I'm really grateful for. And the second thing is, uh, tell me about the discussion with your mother back then when she she was she had the budding doctor and then you you, you, you knocked on the living room door or whatever it is and said, Ma, I've got some news for you. Tell me, can you recall that? Oh, I remember it very well. In fact, I remember <laughs> yep. the exact conversation. And I'll say before I go into that, you know, Jim, accepting that the path that you're on is the path for you can be hard for people. It was hard for yep. me. Yeah, that, that transition that am I doing the right thing? Am I choosing the right path? I remember a lot of anxiety, a lot of angst about that. And, you know, I, I finally found it, it took some time. But, you know, you gain you become uh, peaceful. Yeah, it, You accept, you know, once I did that, once I th- realized, you know, this is actually where I should have been all along. That was a real turning point in my young professional career. But yes, I do remember the conversation with my parents. It was it was it was me that was anxiety stricken over the change, not my parents. My parents, yep. you know, my mother truly has always believed in me. Uh, has always said since I was a little boy, you know, Rankin, you you can do anything you want to do. You can be anyone you want to be. And uh, she, you know, even throughout in my young brain, hey, you could be president of the United States. Now, she never should have said that because (laughs) anything less than that seemed like failure. But (laughs) but 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 that support. So she had no problem with the transition. My parents had they were very supportive and consistently supportive. It was I think it came from her. You know, she was born during the Depression. You know, she came from parents who had to find their way through that. And uh, with that in their background, which is not something that any of us of our age or younger can understand, it gives you a certain, you know, desire for your children to have a profession. Yeah. Have something that they know they can always fall back on, that they'll always be able to do, that they can always pay the bills. And uh, so, yeah, the answer was fine with my mom. So Rankin, I, I absolutely relate to that. You and I are very similar vintage, if I could call it that. And certainly with my parents and grandparents, same thing too. And that there was one desire from my parents and that was it. They hadn't been schooled. They went up to grade six. There was only one thing that was important to them, the education of their children. So hear you loud and clear on that and feel really, I have to say, really grateful that I was the beneficiary. Uh, of that. Couldn't have asked for, you know, a a better grounding um, and a sense of what really mattered early on. And on your, on the first point, you talked about the accepting of where your path lies. It's funny, just even speaking to and having kind of young adult children right now, sometimes we do feel a pressure, a pressure to say, this is the path and the anxiety around whether or not it's the right path. What I've tried to instill is 
it's not a do or die decision and or once and once it's set it's forget and um so taking some of the pressure off early because that's what you do and i've felt it too you feel like this is it and once i make the decision let's do or die if i make the wrong one it can be it can be catastrophe or i can be forever unhappy Actually liberating yourself from that kind of lens and saying, no, actually, it's a path. And if it ends up being the wrong path, that's okay. You're smart, you're motivated, you've got encouragement and support around you, you'll get to the right path. So and I think that's incredibly important, particularly well, at any stage, but particularly at those formative years when you're trying to work out trying to work out whether it's what you're studying or what you're doing after you're studying and whether you really want to be a lawyer or whether whatever it might be, just accepting that, you know, I always say it's a journey, accept it's a journey and that really learn from the experiences and be comfortable that you might change at some point. You and I possibly, uh, I think we're clearly the way we were moulded, set for a particular career and grateful that we've had that. And certainly from your perspective, I'm going to call that a very successful career. So yeah, there's lots of learnings there, um, uh, Rankin. But um, as I said, for me, one of those takeaways is making sure that um, you're comfortable accepting and comfortable accepting it's not forever and that the path might actually change. Any, tell me, any thoughts on that from your own experience? I couldn't agree with you more. And it's fascinating. We, we have, my wife Jennifer and I have uh, three Three kids, uh, they're all in their 20s. Uh, the youngest is a senior, senior at Baylor right now, but our son, he works in a Christian camping ministry out in East Texas. Our, our oldest is a currently teaching school. And in talking to them, w- Jim, same conversations, lots of anxiety, yep. lots of, yep. am I doing the right thing? And I am absolutely, you're 100% right, and I'm absolutely convinced and I've said to them, and I'm thinking particularly of conversations with my son, who's a very talented young man, you know, you can't possibly predict what your path may be. You can't possibly predict uh, what you may ultimately do in your lifetime of working. But what you're doing right now, you're doing really well because your heart is in it. Yeah. You're all in in what you're doing. And that's what matters. Give yourself over to what you're pursuing now and worry less about where the path is going to go because... The world is wide open. The possibilities are almost endless for someone like you. So just, just you know, sell out to yep. the moment and then yep. let's see where it goes. Rankin, I've got to say, I love that give yourself. If you're able to give yourself to whatever you're doing, heart and soul, then, then the rest takes care of itself, including the path, because the opportunities, the right opportunities end up opening up for themselves. This is like a bit of a therapy session I'm fairly hearing, but but it's true. I can see it when you're all in and you're right. And if you're not all in, that's probably an indication that the path might not be right, which is fine too. But what you'll find is when you find something you're all in, the opportunities just end up creating themselves and the doors start opening and then you know that, that, that path or that journey um, starts playing out. Well, I realise, Jim, this is a a podcast about innovative legal leadership, but (laughs) if we, if we don't do anything else, but talk about this, we will have benefited some folks out there who will hear this. You know, I think that's a real sort of cornerstone of my career at 7-Eleven. It's my personality, Jim. If I'm in on something, I'm in it heart and soul. And I'd never, I didn't 
know what a chief administrative officer was when I started my career. I, I yeah. didn't even really have my sights set on being a general counsel of a, a massive organization. It was just, you know, I'm going to go ahead and sell out to this because this is the kind of person that I am. I'm best when I just give myself to it. And people respond to that. People, people know that you're all in, that they're interested in, in you and your journey and, and what you have to say. And then that creates a platform from which you can provide leadership, from which you can influence others. When you're that all in, people want to know why. Yep. And it, it's, it draws them to you and can then create the opportunity for you to do other things. And Rankin, I, you know, I also love that as a leadership principle because you're absolutely right. You gravitate to, that's precisely what I think, especially when you're younger in your career, even when you get a little old, that's who you gravitate to. You gravitate to people that you can see are all in there. They're energized. They love what they do because that's what you want in your own career. You want to be energized and love what you do. I had an ex a text exchange just with my sister the other day. And I you know, said what I'd done over the last few weeks ago. I did some traveling and um, it was overseas and visiting a number of cities. And she wrote back and she said, I'm exhausted just reading the text message. Uh, to which I replied, which is absolutely true, find something you love and you never work another day. And to me, that is, that is for me the definition of ending up living your best life. I'm incredibly fortunate. Again, not about this is not about me, but if we can help others find that path where they where they do find what they're all in for and follow that particular path, you get close to what I think is a nirvana, not feeling like you're working but because it's something you're passionate and love to do. Not working another day of your life. What a great what a great goal and achievement we can set for for ourselves. Amen. That's all I have to say to that, Jim. Well said. I think we might have peaked now, Rankin. I wonder whether we should just finish off here. No, let's keep going. <laughs> let's keep going. <laughs> so tell me about some of the, you talked about leadership, some of the early challenges, let's say, with your early time. Let's let's split them up in two or three phases, if you like, as your time in legal within 7-Eleven, and then we'll talk a little bit about the most recent position as the Chief Administration Officer. But if you think back to to the 30 years or so within 7-Eleven, how do you break up, especially in the legal function, how do you kind of segment those periods and what stands out for you most during your career there? It's interesting. I, I was trained, as I think you were as a young lawyer, as a litigator. And I actually came over here initially to 7-Eleven. And I should say editorially, I never intended to go in-house. That was not... Uh, I was at uh, Gardier and Wynn. Uh, here in Dallas, which was a major firm, uh, still is a major yep. firm here in Dallas. I was uh, doing all manner of commercial litigation, very successful at it. I could tell you a long story about my role as a very young lawyer in the uh, SNL crisis that occurred right. in 1988, which was the first year I was a lawyer, but ended up at 7-Eleven at and I was managing, uh, and that's a funny story too. 7-Eleven is a nearly 100-year-old company based here in Dallas, the first convenience store ever was actually in Oak Cliff, which is a southern suburb of Dallas. And I went to school, high school, with a young lady who was a dear friend of mine whose father was the general counsel of the Southland Corporation, which is the predecessor name of 7-Eleven. Right, okay, and yep. Knew her, knew him. Fast forward to, 
I'm this young litigator here in Dallas and I'm getting calls from a headhunter. Her father, who had been the GC, is now the CEO of Southland. And so I had a... Oh, what a story. I had this warm and fuzzy feeling. You know, I, I, I always loved 7-Eleven. I'm like so many American kids. I rode my bicycle to 7-Eleven when I was a kid to go buy penny candy like everybody else did. So I actually told the headhunter, no, I'm not interested. And they called back several months later because I guess they had trouble filling the job or whatever. Asked me again, and it was just a different day. And I said, okay, I'll talk to them. But, but I was managing uh, litigation, premises liability stuff to begin. So yep. back back then, this is before tort reform, Jim. That's how long I've been here. And the Southland Corporation, I once figured out, was getting sued somewhere in the continental United States once every business day over a slip and fall or some event slip that trips. happened. Yeah. Yep. But and so that was sort of the first phase. Then in about 1997, 98, right in that time frame, the then general counsel came in my office one day and he said, hey, Rankin, listen, Dave, Dave, who was the then the HR lawyer, Dave is getting promoted. He's going to go run HR. Congratulations. You're the new employment lawyer. You might want to go to a seminar or something. And turned heel and walked out of my office. True, true story. So he might dispute the nature of that conversation, but I'm telling you, I'm yep. pretty close. Yeah. Usually, usually the recipient is the better has the better recall of a conversation that like that than the one delivering. So yes, I, I, absolutely. I, my money's my money's on you, Rankin. I can tell you. What I discovered was I had a knack again. I ended up being where I should have been all along, and you know yep. sometimes you just have to trust it, but. The thing about being the employment lawyer in a large organization you learn is everybody in the company knows who you are and you know who they are. It, from the guy in the mailroom to the CEO, if somebody has an HR problem, they pick up the phone and they call you. And it's so much about relationships. It's so yeah. much about knowing people, building trust with people, that that really created that role. And I was the one and only employment lawyer for this company for almost 14 years. I was doing other things, but I was principally the employment lawyer. It, it's a great job to have in a large yeah. organization just because it gives you that opportunity, that platform from which to build incredible relationships with everybody in the company. And, and that set the stage for me to then ultimately become the deputy general counsel, supporting that same Dave, by the way, who got promoted to be HR. That's he became the GC. He and I had a tremendous relationship, yep. uh, which was about me supporting him. You know, ultimately, that's what a GC is looking for. A GC is looking yep. for someone who makes their life better. Yep. And I set about doing that. My responsibility expanded over time until in 2012, uh, Dave retired. The then and current CEO, Joe DePinto, said, you know, Rankin, you're my guy. And um, set about the GC career, which, you know, Jim, retail is hard yeah, and, and lots of fascinating and scary things happen in retail. And it gives the GC as much opportunity as they want to actively engage in the business, help the business solve really hairy problems and continue to expand that, that platform of influence and leadership uh, and really make a difference. And and I, I've really enjoyed having that opportunity here. And just setting the scene also a little bit, when you joined in 89, 90, when you joined, tell me the size of the, let's say, the number of stores roughly, size of the organisation, and comparing it to, 
I'd love to compare it to now because that's an incredible journey, including if you can remember the size of the legal team compared to now too. Well, tell me, bookend the, 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 the discussion with those points, if you like. You know, my story with Southland overlaps with some very interesting times in the history of that, this company. I joined in 1991. 91, right. Nine, yep. 91 was the year that the Southland Corporation actually emerged from a bankruptcy. In the preceding decade, the founding family, the Thompson family, had done a, a leverage buyout, taking the company. It had been public back to private. There was a large amount of debt associated with that. And then there was a recession in 88. Yep. And that debt became too much for the company to bear. So emerged from bankruptcy in 91. 70% owned by a Japanese company and 30% publicly traded. The size of the company, I'm not going to be able to recall exactly how many stores, but you know, what is fascinating is let's say it was 50,000 stores and that's worldwide, globally. Yeah. And let's say it was 7,500 to 8,000 stores in North America. Today, this globally there are over 77,000 7-Eleven stores in the world. You're Australian. You know that there are 7-Elevens yep. in Australia. One, one in every corner, absolutely. There are uh, 20,000 7-Elevens in Japan. There are 10,000 7-Elevens in Thailand, 10,000 in South Korea. I could go on and on. Yep. And just for the record, the childhood uh, memory of the Australian is the Slurpee at the 7-Eleven, the all you can fill, maybe the all you can fill actually came a little bit later when you bring deliver your buckets and, and pull down the slurpy lever, but that's certainly the lasting memory for me on the 7-Eleven. Well, you know, that's a great story, Jim, because <laughs> the Australian licensee of 7-Eleven created Bring Your Own Cup Day. Ah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> the cup could be anything. That's right. And so we have amazing pictures of bringing, you know, five-gallon buckets. but Yeah, buckets. The, the one that stands in my mind is someone brought a half of a mannequin turned upside down. I don't know what the capacity of that thing was, but the, they could fill it with Slurpee, and that that originated in Australia. Yeah, Slurpee's yep. a huge brand in, in well, Australia. Uh, that is hilarious. So there you go. There's that memory, and typically, I think, typically an Australian one. And then, so, so that that little, that, that happened worldwide then, did it? Did, did well, the, there we go. Well, beyond Australia, at least. We've, we've replicated that in the U.S. I think some other licensees have F as well. Fantastic. It's just a really fun promotion, promoting yep. a really incredible uh, brand, Slurpee. Yep. But just to finish the thought, so today, this, it, this entity, 7-Eleven Inc., is just under 14,000 stores in North America. And we are private, uh, wholly owned. But if we were a public company, we'd be about Fortune 44, somewhere between Procter & Gamble wow. and Pepsi. So. Wow. This is a huge enterprise here. Yep. And so thinking about that, the relationship building part of your career up to, and I love that story too, because some something I always call out didn't work hard enough in the early years on the networking, the relationships and being an employment lawyer. I hadn't never thought about that, but what, what a position that puts you in to build those relationships. Okay. Then when you took on the GC role, tell me about the kind of key challenges for you let's say early and then a bit later on and how they might have, or well, the priorities might have changed. Well, I think, so at the time that I took over the legal function, we had a real need to, to enhance our capabilities, to grow the function. Yeah. It was a, it was a well-respected function, but it, in my mind, 
well, the goal, and I, this is going to sound immodest, but I wanted to have the best legal function in retail. Yep. And I don't know that that how you would measure that or whether that's achievable, but that was the goal. Yeah. And so we also needed to, frankly, honestly, diversify the function. And so it was a focus for me to bring in talented lawyers uh, that were diverse. Proud to say today that our general counsel uh, uh, is uh, an incredibly talented woman who I have had. A really, I've known her for 35 years, Lillian Kirstein, uh, incredible lawyer. Fantastic. But that that function is now majority female. We have wonderful representation from uh, a number of ethnicities. It is, uh, it, it, I think, is the model for what DE&I should look like at yep. 7-Eleven. And I've got a CEO who thinks he's got the best legal department in retail. So I guess if there's a way to measure it, and th then he verbalizes that, that we've achieved something. So yeah, very proud of our team here. We hire lawyers. Uh, we, f we hire the smartest most capable people we can find. And we've had a lot of real good success with that. Tell me about what do you think, I think I know the answer because we've probably touched on this. Rankin, I'm going to ask you about your superpower. Okay. Your super, what was it? What were you, what do you um, call out as helping you deliver what in some circles, people talk about as the best legal department in retail. I'm sure there are lots of retail GCs out there who would take issue with that, by the way. But, you know, well, one, I think it's having the courage to say it out loud. Yep. Hey, here's the goal. Uh, my superpower, I, I don't know. I, I'm pretty good at relationships. I think I'm pretty good at the inspirational side of things. I like to talk about the big picture. I like to talk about who we want to be. And then I, you know, set about trying to make that happen. So those are things that I, that I know I'm good at and, and that have helped us along the way. Superpower. I think in hiring, my main superpower is, and you'll laugh at this, but it's actually true. I, I'm really not going to hire you unless I'm fairly convinced you're smarter than I am. Now, some people around here will tell you that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> and I'm being slightly facetious when I say that, but, but, yeah. you know, I like that old Steve Jobs quote. And I had it on my board in my office for years. I took, just recently took it down because I think it'd been up there long enough. But Steve Jobs said, we don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. Yep. We hire smart people to tell us what to do. Us what to do. Yeah. And I, I love that. I absolutely believe in that. And I try to manage that way, you know? You can have as much rope as you want. Go out there and be awesome and have the courage to know that uh, the strength of your convictions, you should follow them and that I've got your back. Because as long as you're out there doing it with a, with a pure heart and trying to make the company better, if you make a mistake, fine, we'll fix that. <laughs> but, yep. but lead yeah. out and make decisions and be strong. We have a number of leadership principles here at 7-Eleven, and one of the key ones is be courageous with your point of view. And I try to create an environment where people feel comfortable doing that. What do you really think? What do you really, where do you think we should go? What decision should we make? Put it out there on the table. And, and creating an atmosphere where people really know that you mean it and that you have their backs, you will protect yeah. them. That fosters courageousness, it fosters collaboration, it, 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 it makes your decisions better uh, and it makes the company better. Rankin, there are so many things there that I could just 
dive right into. Uh, we don't have the time, so I'm not going to. I'm just going to call them out. I think that's absolutely right. Creating an environment where people genuinely feel safe so that they can speak the courage of their convictions. Okay, that is key. Two, hiring fantastic people and getting out of their way. <laughs> Providing them the guardrails they need, but you know, consistent with the Steve Jobs quote that you said, I love that, it's one of my favorites, hire the best and just get out of the way and provide them with whatever the guidance, um, encouragement they need. But importantly, that safe environment and what you said, knowing that um, you have their backs. There is nothing more empowering, I think, when, when the leadership, when you feel the leadership absolutely has your back. So safety, getting hiring great people, getting them out of their way and letting them and genuinely feel you have their backs and it's a safe environment. What a cocktail to deliver over performance in a fantastic team. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Your latest career move, I think it was only in April 2021 to the Chief Administration Officer. You weren't sure what that actually meant. I don't know um, how long before you took on the role. Tell us what it means now and tell us what you've learnt, I suppose, in the last 12 or so months since taking on that role. Well, you know, it's... uh... I still have a, a legal role. It's not in my title. And I try not to dispense too much legal advice because as my now general counsel tells me, that's not my job anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm not necessarily protected by privilege when I do it. Yeah. So I should be careful and I try to listen to her. You know, these senior leadership jobs at a company like this, some of these things that I'm good at, you know, providing inspiration, providing uh, guidance and guardrails for where we need to go, and creating an atmosphere where people can be successful is still very key to what I do. It's just, it's just across a broader range of functions. And, you know, I, I feel the freedom, Jim, to influence and insert myself across the business. I, it, technically, you know, I, the, the keystone functions that I have, and I have, you know, a laundry list, and I won't bore you with that, but I still have legal. I have HR, which is a little unusual, and I have ESG environmental, social, and governance, which is becoming a huge area in corporate America. But you know what I love about that? It, it really gives me a chance. I have a philanthropic bent. I have a, uh, a desire to help others, and that falls under that umbrella. So it, it lets me manifest those things that I like to do anyway, you know, on behalf of the company. So that's a, that's a great opportunity for me. But again, it's hiring outstanding people. It's promoting outstanding people and putting them in in positions to succeed on behalf of the company, uh, just with a broader scope. And I have to be very intentional about inserting myself into situations, providing clarity. One of my favorite definitions of leadership, Jim, I actually heard this from a man named Gene Habecker, who is uh, he is a former dean of Taylor University, president of American Bible College, but no, the American Bible Society, but but. I heard Gene say one time, and it stuck with me, a leader absorbs chaos and returns order. And I love that. I think that is a big part of what leaders do because there's a lot of chaos in this business. There's a lot of chaos in the environment out there. There's a lot of chaos in trying to understand where the customer's going and what's important. And to be able to synthesize that and then return order and clarity to people is essential 
for leaders. And uh, more than anything else, as chief administrative officer, my job is to insert leadership where it's needed. Yep. I have to, I love that. I hadn't heard that before, Rankin. I love that. That imagine and thinking about the empowering nature of that to the business, where you're in a position where you can absorb the chaos, which is what really we're looking for from our leaders, isn't it? We want and but then to be able to then to give the direction and the focus that order requires. Sounds like to me, Rankin, you're in a really fortunate position. Um, you're clearly loving what you're doing. I'm not sure it feels like work for you because um, it does. Depends on the day, uh, Jim. Yeah, it depends on the day. <laughs> Kudos to you, Rankin, because um, I can, it's absolutely clear to me those kind of leadership principles that you talk about, it seems like to me that is your superpower being able to insert yourself and create the kind of environment that we're talking about. So, you know, Jim, yeah. I, I want to say this is important and um, it's a choice. Yeah. Because my personality, it, you wouldn't know, you don't know me that well and you would have no way of knowing this, but I once had a psychologist describe me as a, like a kettle on top of a stovetop with a, a lid that's wired in place, but only loosely wired. And so the, the the top of the kettle is always kind of vibrating. And and that's pretty accurate of me. I, there's a lot going on inside. But what I realized, and I realized this, and I'm still working on it every day, I can't be that in this environment. I have to choose to be steady. I have to choose to be calm. And I have to choose, as I say, to try and absorb the chaos and return the order in spite of what's going on inside, my, in, inside of my chest. Yep. Because that's who the company needs me to be. And that's who I need to be in order to, to impact people the way that I want to impact them. So it is a choice. And, you know, you, you have to make it every day. And I don't succeed at it. Sometimes, sometimes that vibrating kettle manifests. It bubbles a little over, does it? It does. I'm going to yeah. be honest. But, but that's okay. Yep. You, you know, I think people around here understand that I'm genuine and I'm trying to be the best version of me that I can be for them. And, you know, then you just do the best you can. And Rankin, to me, that is a life lesson. I talk about choice in terms of just even basic happiness. Okay. You choose, I think you choose ultimately happiness because you choose what you're influenced by and what won't influence you. And ultimately, as you get a little bit older, you work out that it's not about what's going on around you because then you're always subject to external influences. It's about how you absorb and what and how you react, whatever it might be. And so whether, to me, it goes back down to whether it's basic happiness, the way you deal with people, everything in life. And when you learn that, that is actually a choice. And, and sometimes it does... Sometimes I do not bring my best self and I walk out of room thinking and I recognise it straight away and it was a bad moment and sometimes it takes me a while to come back into the room and actually admit that wasn't my best self and I work on that too. <laughs> I reckon I have to tell you and sometimes it takes too long for me to shout out and recognise and, and tell everyone that was a really, that was poor Jim. It was not my best self but... 
but it's the working at it. It's the recognising it and working at it. That's where I think, Rankin, you, that's what we've all got to make progress towards. It's a key learning in life, Jim, and you learn it yeah. as a parent with your kids. You learn it, and I've learned it here, and you talked about you know, asking forgiveness when you – I'm quick to do that. And I, I don't, yep. not that I like it, but, no. you know, when I don't, as you say, very aptly, don't bring my best self yep. to, to acknowledge that. And what I found is people are incredibly ready to extend grace, incredibly forgiving. And in fact, you can endear yourself to them even more by just being honest and saying, you know what? I didn't handle that the way I should have. Uh, I, that was suboptimal on my part. Please forgive me. Let, let's start again. It, it, it's it's a very profound lesson that I had to learn the hard way uh, early in my career, and I and if I'm honest, I'm still learning it. Yeah, I, I think we all are. Uh, Rankin, I we could go on for a lot longer, but we're not going to. We're going to wrap up now. I have to say, I hate calling out favourites, but I've got to tell you, Rankin, this is one of mine. I've had an absolute blast speaking to you. You've been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for joining me. You're very welcome, Jim. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. I think this was a maybe not exactly the, the, the <laughs> groove in which you normally operate, but, but a All great right. conversation. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Really special. Thank you, Rankin. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me. Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.